these comments. I mean, I don't know if it's a formal talk. These reflections that I'm working through on this film, Django, is called Django's Blues. You sort of sit, hear a theme in, in my own kind of reflections of later around blues sensibilities. And so um, I did this uh, chapel sermon yesterday on um, the blues, medication for the blues. And then um, those of you who may have had a chance to come to the, um, to the other lecture yesterday afternoon, I thought about the um, theologian, um, and in many ways Christian martyr of the 20th century, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in relationship to the blues. I called that talk um, Bonhoeffer's and our post-racial blues. And today I want to talk about Django, this film Django, in relationship to the blues as well. But not just Django, Django in relationship to two other films in Quentin Tarantino's um, satchel, as it were, of, of movies and films. And that is the film that he did, I think it was back in something like 07, if I think it was, called um, Inglorious Bastards. How many of you seen, saw Inglorious Bastards? Okay, great, a good number of you saw that too, so you'll appreciate some of the movies I'm gonna make. And then the film before that was Kill Bill, the, the part one, volume one, volume two of Kill Bill. Yeah, yeah, I'm gonna ask, how many of you have seen that, Kill Bill? Uh, y'all got to come on now, y'all got, I, I know y'all love the Lord and he heard your cry and you Christian and all, but you got to go see these films. <laughs> come on now. <laughs> If for no other reason, it's hard for me to talk about this publicly if you haven't seen the films. Um, but for real, they're, they're really good films and really good in the sense that they're interesting. Now, Quentin Tarantino, he poses before us um, these conundrums because he really plays off of violence a lot in his films. And so sometimes they can be off-putting, the violence that's going on in the film. But nevertheless, I think these films have a lot to say to us. Now, before I get into the films, let me just say something about the post-racial, um, because I talked about it a little bit in relationship to Dietrich Bonhoeffer um, last evening about 4 o'clock, and I think I want to say something about it now to sort of set up what I'm going to say about these films. Now, arguably, there have been two big phases to the post-racial, one of which you are very familiar with, I assure you. That is the most recent phase of the post-racial, which really started getting traction and circulation around President Barack Obama's first um, um, term in the White House in 2008. You remember, when Obama was up for election, there was this deep kind of cultural sense, right, that this country may in fact be putting its race problem behind itself. The sign of which is if we can elect this president, an African-American, to become the leader of this country, and as many will want to say, the leader of the free world, indeed, it may be that we are putting our race problem behind us, right? And so there was a lot of cultural cachet, a lot of cultural investments placed upon Obama, right? In some sense, unfair to him, but nevertheless placed upon him. Why? Because he came to be, for many of us, a cultural symbol of progress, right? You remember that. And in many ways, a lot of what happened in the 2012 election term, though in some sense the kind of euphoria wasn't at the same level around him, but there still was this sense, if we can even reelect a black president, indeed, we may be becoming post 
racial. Now, again, I mentioned before that the post-racial has two phases. The first phase was around the presidency of the United, the presidency of Barack Obama, United States president, in which we put a lot of cultural cachet onto him to be a kind of messianic, almost symbolic messianic figure of our overcoming. And the post-racial here means the overcoming of race, the finally of getting over it. Not so much the interrogation of race, but the overcoming of race. Not so much the going through of race, but the going around of race. We finally just made it on the other side of this problem, right? Now, of course, we know, or you should know, this was a fiction. We know it was a fiction because throughout Obama's presidency, no matter the fact that he insisted on not talking about race, race kept knocking on his front door, <laughs> saying, here I am. There were many, many incidents, right? I can name them all, but the one that really comes to mind that I'm sure many of you know about was the tragic death of Trayvon Martin. When Obama did not talk about that tragedy in terms of race or invoke race, when he just talked about we're going to let the, the wheels of justice turn and figure out and get to the bottom of this, he had bipartisan Republican and Democrat support. But then you remember when he had that conference in the Rose Garden with Secretary of State Hillary Clinton on one side, and I forget who, I think it was a foreign dignitary on the other, Obama made a decision to imagine if he had a son, he would be like Trayvon. And at that moment, not only the, 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 uh, the, the political class of Washington, D.C. split around him, but in many ways the culture, U.S. culture, split around Obama. Some saying he shouldn't have brought in race. Some saying, you know, he had to bring it in. This, for me, is the example of how, despite our claims to the post-racial, the racial keeps tracking us down. Now, there's a deeper backstory about how our efforts to go around race is really not a getting over of race. Race keeps trying to track us down. The other example of this is going back really to the 1960s, right? With the rise of Martin Luther King Jr. and civil rights, this was the beginning of a wish that maybe we might be getting over this kind of racial devil and bugaboo that's been harassing U.S. culture. And in many ways, ever since the 1960s, U.S. culture has been trying to become post-racial. And here comes Obama and his presidency, and alas, we might be realizing it. And finally, turning the cultural page on the race problem. Now, enter Quentin Tarantino. You got to almost imagine the music, you know, din, 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 you know, Kill Bill. <laughs> imagine Quentin Tarantino. Tarantino is really, really interesting, right? And he's interesting because, and here's the reading I want to suggest, both around Django and around his wider cinematography. Because I want to claim before us today, and you go see the films and you tell me if you think this works, I want to develop this claim before us, at least start to draft out, outline, talk through a claim before you today that says Tarantino's filmography, particularly around Django, the kind of trilogy, the, the kind of uh, trinity of films, Django, Inglorious Bastards, and Kill Bill, 
they put before us the possibility of thinking the post-racial in a different way. Here's how it works. Let's first talk about Django on its own terms, and then I'm going to read Django in relationship to these other films. On its own terms, Django, I love Django because, and, and I should stipulate, there's, there's a big kind of black literati and cultural literati out there that is split, but more on the side of having these deep problems with Django. I am decidedly on the other side. I love this film. I love this film. I know it's full of blood and gore, Quentin Tarantino West, I get that, but I love this film. Why do I love this film? The reason I love the film Django is for a powerful and simple reason. And then I'll give you the layers. I love the film because the film, while it stages its argument by way of an engagement with the history of slavery, the brutal, painful history of slavery on the one side, and the brutal, painful history of the conquering of the U.S. West, the expansion of U.S. Um, civilization across the continental United States, killing out American Indian populations. It stages it between slavery and the conquering of the West. But with all of that said, the deep logic and storyline of Django is it's a love story. Django, in effect, stages an argument about how the story of love is precisely what is not conquered in both the, 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 um, the painful history of U.S. slavery and the conquering of the West and the killing off of Amerindians. Death is death coming at both black folk and Amerindian folks does not conquer the story of love. That's Django. Spoiler alert, no. <laughs> that's, that's Django. It's a brilliant attempt to narrate the story of love. But let me tell you one more love on this. Now start to sink inside a little. Another reason why I love Django is because not only is it a story of love, listen to this, it is a story of black love. Now, you've got to understand, the, in the history of slavery, the linking up of blackness and love is oxymoronic. The system of U.S. slavery, and indeed not just U.S. slavery, the broader history of modern colonialism of which U.S. slavery is a part, is fundamentally a story that denies the realities of love. It allows love only for some and denies love to others. Love, in other words, is a zero-sum game. Available to some, denied to others. Let me put it to you this way. The storyline of love is inside of the storyline of capture, the conversion of people into property and the attempt to make of them commodities. Love becomes part of the analytics of commodification. And inside of this analytics of commodification, black folk are denied love. You still don't get me, do you? 
Let me just play with it just a little bit more now. I'll move on because I know I don't have much time. In the story of U.S. slavery, in the story of modern slavery, the black male slave is denied the possibility of love precisely because the black male slave could never be a father. He could be used to produce babies, but that does not make a father. Fatherhood is the prerogative of the white man who is the head of his family and as the head of his family is the representative of citizenship in broader culture. This is precisely what a black man cannot be. The black man cannot be a citizen, which is to say the black man cannot own property. And because the black man cannot be a citizen and own property, the black man cannot be head of a domestic space with his property, that is his wife and his slaves. This is what a black man can't do. And in this schema, a black man cannot love within the logic of property and capital. Moreover, a black woman could never be a mother. She might have babies, but she can't be a mother. If she were a mother, she would be a rival, a competitor for the white woman who is the property figure in the space of the home. Enter Django. Django wants to rewrite the story of slavery such that love is shown to survive. And so the figure played by Jamie Foxx under the name of Django, he falls in love with and has his own kind of marriage, which is a fugitive marriage, because again, within the orders of slavery, there can be a formal marriage between slaves. Marriage itself is a part of the logic of property. So they have a fugitive marriage, right? A secret, surreptitious marriage. And they are sold apart from each other. The character Django, played by Jamie Foxx, and his love interest, her name is um, Broomhilda, I believe is her name, right? Played by Carrie um, Washington. Any of you know the show um, Scandal? Oh, come on, y'all. Y'all disappointing me. Come on now. <laughs> Any, anybody in here know Scandal? Any Scandal watchers? Uh, this is scandalous that there are not enough Scandal watchers. Play Carrie Washington stars in, in Scandal. Well, she also is the love interest in Django. The story is all about how, despite the fact that they are sold away from each other, how the figure Django, the ends to which he will go to find his love, Brunhilde, and will literally kill anything and anybody that gets in the way. That's the Tarantino part. <laughs> and so the story is a story of what within the logics of our modern society and civilization is an impossibility. Love, and indeed an uncommodified, a form of love that resists commodification, a form of love that is not about property ownership, a form of love that is not about what you gonna do for me, what can I get from you? It's a form of love that exceeds our abilities to understand what this love is about. 
It's love of a different order. And indeed, not only of a different order, of such a different order, it intersects and intercepts and interrupts the order of love as we know it. Now, already at that point, your Christian ears should be tingling because a Christian hearing of this should indeed hear the man Jesus who represents an order of love that defies our commodifications of relationships. And in his own way, Tarantino is staging this. But for me, what's so brilliant is this. And here you ought to hear Philippians 2, right? Paul's uh, a hymn, hymn of praise to who Jesus is. You should hear that in the background because it's at precisely the sight of the slave, both in Tarantino's film and in the Philippians hymn, that God manifests and gives us a revelation of love. If you want to understand love, you look to the slave. And indeed, in looking to the black slave, you are looking at an analogy of the God who becomes a human being as a slave. God doesn't just become a human being. That's too abstract. God becomes a human being as a slave. And from the position of the slave disrupts the order of mastery and slavery, of property and value as we have been made to live into it. Now, okay, I gave you my little thumbnail of, 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 of um, Django. Let me just check my time, excuse me. Okay, good, I still got a few more minutes. Now, let me, let, me, let me tie this together a little bit with Tarantino's other two films, because I've argued that, in effect, these three films are an engagement, can be read as a new way to hear, well, what, what, what might be a better way to think about the post-racial? Might be a better way to think about the post-racial. Now, let me bring these other two films on board and now begin to mount my stronger case on how these films suggest another way to think the post-racial. And I think that it's very important for us Christians to appreciate this. Let's start with, um, let's start with Inglorious Bastards. I think I saw some of you said that you saw this film. Inglorious Bastards is a powerful film. Inglorious Bastards is Tarantino's attempt to rewrite, not this time, the story of slavery, but to rewrite this time the story of Nazi oppression against the Jews. What Tarantino wants to do in this film is interrogate not the scene of slavery, but the, sle the scene of Jewish anti-Semitism. And he wants to tell the story a little differently. He begins the story basically with this scene of a French family that's hiding Jews in its basement. A Nazi leader who has been commissioned with the task of finding dissident Jews, Jews hiding in the homes of other French people for protection. His task is to go find those Jews, root them out, sniff them out. So the scene opens with this Nazi military leader going to a home, interrogating this French man who's a farmer and his daughters, his children, to see if they have, if they're hiding some Jews. Turns out they are. The Jews are in the basement. They're under the, the floorboards, the crawl space of the home. This military leader, he comes in, he quizzes and interrogates this Frenchman, basically putting pressure on him to tell the truth. You know you're hiding Jews here. With tears coming down his eyes, he finally gives in. 
and says, yes, there are Jews here. They're hiding in the basement. The military man brings in his troops. He asks the guy to point out where they are on the floorboards, underneath the floorboards. The man again crying tears, he says, they're there. And these military Nazi SS troops come in and they shoot up with, with machine guns, shoot up the floorboards, killing all these Jews, except one. There's this one Jewish girl who escapes, runs away across the field, they don't catch her. Fast forward about 10 years, this same Jewish girl starts to pass as a French girl who's not Jewish, even though her name is Emmanuel, right? She owns a cinema, a movie theater. And the long story short is Hitler, his right-hand man, a guy named Goebbels. Goebbels was notorious in the Nazi regime. Bonhoeffer even talks about him. He was notorious. Goebbels, Hitler, they, and, and Goebbels is the minister of cinema and propaganda. The film industry in Germany was run by the Nazi Goebbels. Long story short, they strike a deal with this Jewish girl who they think is just French. She remembers what they did. They want to show one of their propaganda, Nazi propaganda films for an elite group of Germans. She says, okay, she plot, hatches a plot with her boyfriend who turns out to be an African-French, an Afro-French guy, his name is Marcel, so she's dating a black man. Really, really interesting. They stage this plot on how they're going to kill the leadership of the Nazis and bring the Nazi onslaught to a quick conclusion. In other words, Tarantino's trying to rewrite the story of Nazi Germany. They lock all these leaders in the theater and they're viewing this propaganda film. The French girl, who's also a Jewish girl, she's running the projector up at the top. And what she does with her boyfriend is they say, listen, when they get in there, we're gonna lock the door so they can't get out. We're gonna set a kind of bonfire under the screen that they're looking at. And then I'm going to splice myself into this movie of Jewish, anti-Jewish propaganda as a Jewish girl I'm going to tell them about themselves, and then I'll give you the cue to burn this bonfire here, and we're going to set the whole theater on fire and kill Hitler and all his henchmen. And that's going to be the end of the war. So that's the plan. They execute this plan, burning them up, and at the end, you've got this French girl who bur burst into the movie, burst into the film, disrupting the film, and telling Hitler and everybody about themselves. Out of nowhere, flames come up, and it's as if the theater gets converted into a scene of hell. There are flames coming up on the screen. Um, her image is inflamed now. So it looks like she's burning but still alive, and she's talking to them. Now I'll be the last face you see before you meet your maker in judgment. The film ends. Powerful film. Interesting film. Before I link, make, make, link it all together, let me now go to Kill Bill. I'll come back to this. Kill Bill is another rewrite film. Tarantino is doing all this historical rewrite. First, he re, he's recently rewritten slavery. Then he rewrites Nazism and anti-Semitism. Now what is he going to do? In Kill Bill, my claim is that what he's doing there is he's rewriting the story of the oppression of women in a patriarchal society. You recall the, the, the character played by Uma Thurman. 
she submits herself to Bill. Whatever Bill wants, she does. Bill says, kill this person, she kills them. Bill says, do that, she does it. And indeed, she, as a part of her obedience to Bill, her unconditional obedience to Bill, her unconditional submission to this man, she not only kills for him, she sleeps with him. I know none of y'all don't do that. This, this is a Christian college, I'm sorry. Talk these, talk such uh, infelicities among you, so please. <laughs> sorry. Sorry. But you don't do that, but she did that. Why? Because the film is an acknowledgement in many ways that patriarchal oppression is about a total obedience such that the woman submits every part of her mind and body to men until she gets pregnant. And she decides, I'm not going to do what Bill tells me to do anymore. And once that happens, Bill decides, I'm going to kill this woman because she's no more good to me. A disobedient woman is a useless woman, says Bill, and he commences to shoot her in the head, though she's pregnant, with his baby. The whole rest of the story, volume one and volume two, is how the character played by Uma Thurman comes back to get revenge on Bill, her resistance to the patriarchal order. And indeed, she discovers as a part of this, reunites with her baby. The film concludes, again, as a story of love. You find her coddling her now four-year-old that she's been separated from for all these years. And they're reconnecting, rebonding, as they look at cartoons with the little baby. It's the end of the story. It's got a lot of details in it, though. Cool details, you know, martial arts. I mean, it's, if you like action, go see it. But that's the story. What has Tarantino strung together for us? And why would I try and link the post-racial to it? Here's the punchline. Then I'll get ready to take my seat. What I want to suggest is this. Tarantino's films that I've just narrated, they are suggesting another mode of in dealing with the, with the racial problem. Not by going around it, but actually by interrogating it. As it were, doing an archaeology of the race problem. If we think about the race problem as a kind of archaeological dig with all of these layers of sedimentation, each film tries to excavate and go deeper, deeper, deeper into the problem of race to find its bedrock problem. It doesn't go around race, it goes inside of it. It drills into it. And what does he find at the bedrock level? This is another reason why I love the film. He finds at the bedrock level that the question of race actually is not the question of how the black, the Mexican, the Hispanic, the Latino, the Asian, the, all of the others make sense of themselves. Actually, to get at the root problem of race, you actually have to go to the site that wants to normalize itself. And for Tarantino, it proves to be an interrogation of his own formation as a white man. Did you hear what I said? Now, the reason why this is important for us Christians is this. It turns out that 
the construction of the normalized human being as determined by, overdetermined by, a kind of white masculinist strong posture was actually created and born by way of certain Christian thinkings. What the Tarantino films in effect cause us to ask is this, is there another way to live inside of our humanity such that one among us does not narrate itself as supreme above the others? Is there a way to do that? Now the good news is this, Christians got an answer to this. It's like Tarantino's, but we can fill it out. The answer is this. We live into our Christianity by means of the story of another figure, the figure of Jesus Christ. And in Jesus Christ, we are looking at the one who is a part of another story, the story of the ancient people Israel, the story of its covenant. But in their story, their story is not a story that excludes everybody else. But in their election, it's an election for the outreach, for the love of everybody else. What we've done and what Tarantino indirectly, and I think actually he stumbled upon this. I don't think this was intentional on Tarantino's part. I won't give him that much credit, even though I do think he's a genius. <laughs> I think he's a, a, a cinematic genius. The genius of Christianity is that growing out of the ancient covenants with Israel, we have the story in Jesus of how this people, for whom we are Gentiles in relationship to, this people through Jesus nevertheless has done this. In other words, we live into a story of human love by way of Jesus. And Tarantino, in his own way, has found the two polar opposites that make our racial world work the way it is. On the one side, there's the refusal of love, and on the other side, there's that figure that wants to position itself as supreme. And he reads that figure in relationship to himself. See, that's what I love about Tarantino. Tarantino is the kind of film person who would dare to subject his own self to analysis. This isn't Tarantino, a black man, saying, look what all you white men have done. This is Tarantino, a white man, saying, wait a minute. How do I think about my own formation? How do I think about my own formation in, re in relationship to women? How do I think about my own formation in relationship to that other called the Jew? And then how do I think about my own formation in relationship to that other again called the black? He says, instead of looking at all of those and telling those peoples to account for themselves, what I'm going to do is I'm going to do a self-interrogation. I'm going to look into the taproot of how the racial world has worked has worked. And then I'm going to try and imagine a way for me to be a man, to be myself differently. And what Tarantino does is not unlike what Dietrich Bonhoeffer does. For those of you who came to the lecture last night, you, last evening, you know where I'm going with this. Dietrich Bonhoeffer himself did something similar. He concludes his life before he's executed by writing a poem that basically says, who am I? And like Tarantino, he subjects his own self to analysis and comes out on the other end of the analysis saying, I can no longer ground myself, but I now, but I now am grounded, secured by God. 
problem of the racial world is the belief that we can ground ourselves. The belief that I am adequate to tell the story of myself. The belief that actually I'm the elect of Israel, not the other person. And what Tarantino does, and interestingly, what even Bonhoeffer does, is he reverses the dynamic and says, wait a minute, let me try and think about the figure who is at the tap root of this problem and see if we can imagine another way for us to live into our humanity, taking our cue, particularly from Bonhoeffer, from Jesus Christ. And from Tarantino, taking our cue from a renegade form of love. To follow Jesus is to live according to a renegade love. Django's Blues. Don't you love it? You've got to go see the film. Go see the film. Thank you very much.